Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. All right, turn with me to um, John chapter 16, and we're going to go through verses 16 through 33. Now, just by way of uh, giving a little bit of introduction, um, let's rehearse and think about what's going on here again. Remember, at this time, Jesus has, um, he was teaching in, the, in that upper room during Passover slash Last Supper, correct? And there was, so there's teaching going on inside. And if you really paralleled the teaching to that idea of being inside, Jesus was doing inside teaching in people's lives because he was talking about the cleansing and you're fully bathed and stuff like that. Then Jesus leaves that up room, that last supper, and they're walking with them. And remember, he's walking in the moonlight. It's around Passover season. And as they walk and they leave that upper room, they're traveling down on the south side of the city of Jerusalem, going down the Kidron Valley, and they're traveling up to the Mount of Olives. And remember, we said before that as they're traveling up in the moonlight, and he talks about, um, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remember that one? And if you looked at that time, the big temple that was there that is not there now, but it was massive. Herod's temple was massive. The, the giant doors on the front of it, because Jesus also said, I'm the door. But on the giant doors on the side, there was these big pillars and there was these massive golden vines with big old cl- massive golden clusters of golden grapes. And so as he's walking, he says, I'm the vine. And so they could see the imagery there as he's walking along and see that. And so can you imagine walking in the moonlight and you see these things as he's describing them, things you've seen all the time and now all the teachings being put together, but he's outside and he's saying these things. And so as he walks and he continues to walk, this outside teaching now shifts and we've been reading and talking lately and recently the outside teaching that Jesus is now talking about. He's talking about suffering, He's talking about persecution, and he talks about the opposition that he faces, and because he faced it, guess what? We're going to face that also, right? And so you see how it's interesting how he uses the inside to outside uh, experience um, to bring about the inside to outside Christian experience in, in our lives and what we're going to face. Let me give you one more little tidbit. Can I give you one more tidbit? Because I just like stuff like this. They're just, if you don't like it, that's fine. You could tell me later I didn't like that. It's okay, I just won't listen to you anyway. But anyway, uh, but look at chapter 16 because Jesus, and this is what we're going to cover, but look in, in chapter 16. Look at verse, verse 27. It says there, the Father himself loves you. Now notice the word love, right? Correct? Now look at verse 20. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into what? So you have love and then you have what? And then you have joy. Now look at verse 33. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have, you may have peace. So you have love, joy, peace. Now those are what? Those are fruits of the? The fruits of the Spirit. Now in John chapter 15, Jesus talked a lot about the fruit of our lives, did he not? And so we know that the fruit of the Spirit in uh, Galatians chapter 5, we know it starts off with love, joy, peace. We know that right there. And so I find it really interesting that you see these things here. I don't think it's coincidence. 
I think it's in there specifically, and as Jesus is piecing everything together, and Paul will write later on Galatians, and he'll bring those things out to us. So I just like stuff. I just find that stuff interesting. Anybody else find that stuff interesting besides me? Okay, good. So I'll always give you little tidbits and sidebars and stuff like that. So let's pick up in verse 16. It says this. <clears throat> a little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Verse 17, some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. Now, the problem here, as Jesus says this question, do they understand what he's talking about? They have no clue what he's talking about. They're like, what's he talking about? Now, notice, um, look at the end of verse 17. He adds there, because I go to the Father. Now, or or I should say when he's telling because I go to the Father. But in the original statement, he doesn't say that in verse 16. But he did say it earlier in verse 5. It says, but now I am going to him. So you see go to the Father earlier, and they're questioning, and then Jesus adds it here. So it all connects together. Now, verse 18. So they were saying, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. So... They say to each other, I don't know what he's saying. What is Jesus talking about? They have no clue. Question, when you see the disciples do not understand what Jesus is talking about, how many of you like me feel better about your life? (laughs) Right? Because how many times you read the Bible and go, I don't know what he's talking about. Right? There's someone I'll read it and I go, I I don't don't know know what he's talking about. I don't know what you're saying, Jesus, but... I remember, I don't know who, what the theologian or who it was that made this statement, and it's just a good statement to live by when you're saying, I don't know what he's, t- I don't know what this is saying. And this, I wish I remember who said it, but it's so good. He said this. He said, it's not the things in the Bible I don't understand that trouble me. It's the things in the Bible I do understand that trouble me. Anybody know what I mean? Uh, there's plenty of stuff that you do understand, right? There's plenty of it. And that's the stuff that people are like, oh, I have a, I have a problem with that. That's because you understand what he's challenging you to do. So don't worry about what you don't understand. Just live up to what you do understand. And pretty soon things will make more and more sense to you. Now, I have a question for you. <clears throat> when Jesus says, he says, a little while and you won't see me, and a little while and then you will see me. What's he talking about? Death and resurrection it's very simple this is this is kind of one of his big themes in this chapter 16 right here now let's think about this for a second let's think about why they're not understanding and why they're not getting this thing question have they seen resurrection already name some people they've seen come back from the dead well they saw Lazarus right can you name any others oh that little girl huh you know, Jairus' daughter, okay, that little girl, you know, Jairus' daughter, and then the widow's son at Nain, remember that one, he brought him back from the dead, so these things have happened, okay, so they have seen these things, and you're thinking, well, why is it so hard for them not to understand, well, because they came back, but the addition to the statement in this is, Jesus says, but I go to the Father, those people have not gone to the Father yet, right, so it leaves them a little bit off balance because they don't understand the whole thing yet. So they're still a little bit confused. Now, here's my question. And he did do this, but not to the extent that I'm going to tell you right now. 
Jesus did tell him multiple times, guys, they're, I'm gonna, they're, gonna, they're gonna take me and they're gonna torture me and they're gonna kill me and then I'm gonna rise from the dead. They, he, told, he, he told them a lot of times, right? Right? You know, and so did they get it? No, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it at all or else they didn't want to accept it. But here's the question. Let me expand it out a little bit more. <clears throat> why doesn't, when they don't understand, why doesn't Jesus just say, look, guys, okay, we've already said this. I'm going to say it again and I'm going to add some more to it. Guys, they're going to take me and they're going to torture me and they're going to crucify me. I'm not going to talk a little while, a little while. And then they're going to, you know, I'm going to die. They're going to bury me. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. And then afterwards, I'm going to meet you guys at Galilee and I'm going to be in this whole new glorified body, and I'm going to eat some fish with you. We're going to have a good fish fry, and then sometimes you'll be hiding in a room, and I'm going to just walk through the wall and just appear right there, and you'll be talking to me, and then I'm going to disappear, and I'll be gone again, and you won't even know where I went to. Why doesn't he just tell them that? Because if he told them that, what would they think? Or would they believe it? Could they comprehend it? There's no way. It's like he could tell them that until he's blue. And they're just not going to comprehend this whole thing. So that's why I think he doesn't lay it all out to him. He says, a little while, a little while. Now, let's examine the little while because he does give him more. Look at verse 19 and 20. He says, um, <clears throat> Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, by the way, is it not good to question? Say yes. yes. Let me throw something in that. It's okay when you have doubts. You know Why? Because you should search out to see if these things be true and so, correct? Because that way you learn much more and much better if you explore any doubts you have and find the answers to it. It's, it's a healthy thing to do. Now, read on in verse 19. He's, and he says to them, are you deliberating together about this? In other words, you guys dialogue in this thing? That I said a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into what again? Into joy. Now think about verse 19, little while, little while. Then couple that with verse 20. Hey, you're going to grieve, you're going to be sad, and then boom, you're going to have joy. So there's going to be a little while that you're going to have grief and sadness. And then a little while, then you're going to have joy. What is he talking about again? Death and resurrection. That's exactly what he's talking about again. So he's trying to be as clear as he can with them, but they haven't got there yet, okay? So they haven't experienced it. You and I, we look at it in reverse, don't we? So you and I, it's easy. We've, well, we've been preaching this. We know about the resurrection. But these guys, they're looking at it like, this has never happened. We don't know what's going on here. Now, I made a little mistake in your notes there, so write this verse down now. John 16, 21. I did not put it in there. I caught it in my notes. But John 16, 21, if we don't read that verse, nothing will make sense from here on out. So verse 21 says this. Okay, look up at me. Jesus is a great preacher, is he not? And great preachers are great at illustrating scripture, at giving us everyday illustrations that paint pictures in our mind of spiritual truths. And he's going to give you a great visual again right now. And it's about women and having babies. Look at verse 21. Whenever a woman is in labor, 
She has pain. Is that like an understatement? Because her hour has come, meaning to give birth. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. Say anguish. Because the joy that a child has been born into the world. Now, he gives us great illustration. And, and, I, and I love the illustration. It's a woman in childbirth. Now, um, I, I've been in the labor room, and I've been in the delivery room. Okay, how many... You know what I'm talking about. Raise your hand. You know, okay. Yeah. Third child, Dylan, I almost passed out in the delivery room. I don't know. It just felt like it was 1,000 degrees in there, and I thought, I'm going down right now. And I said, is it okay if I sit down? I think I'm going to pass out. And they go, sit down, Mr. Duck Campbell. Sit down. Okay. So, so I'm in that room. Now, but I've been in there twice before with Vanessa and Nathan being born. Now, in that labor room, is there pain? I mean, it's excruciating to watch this thing. And, you know, and as a husband, I remember with my wife, I told her, I go, I feel everything you're feeling. <laughs> bad, bad. So, of course I don't. But in that, in that labor room and delivery, it's like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, isn't it? It's like crazy in there. It's like insanity all, all in one motion. Now, sh- severe pain, doing all the... Re- <laughs> all, all that stuff... And hours going by, and then all of a sudden, that child pops out. And man, you had that little life, and they put that little child right here on your bosom right there. And then once they put that child right in your bosom, I'll ask you ladies, because Jesus said it. I'm just going with what he said. It's almost like all the pain is forgotten, correct? Because you're looking at that little baby, right? Somebody tell me, yeah, please. Okay, good. I thought maybe Jesus wasn't telling the truth or something like that. Okay, so, so all of a sudden, the, and by the way, the pain has now shifted, and the pain has now turned into what? Joy. It's turned into joy. Everything has turned into joy in life, because once mama, who's been in pain, anguish, sees the baby, now the, that's gone, and now I have this baby, and all the pain's gone, and I have tremendous joy in my life. Amen? Amen. Now, <clears throat> that's what Jesus is telling these guys about death resurrection. In a little while, you're going to have pain. You're going to have sorrow. You're going to have grief. It's going to be awful. It's going to be bad. Then in a little while, I'm going to resurrect from the dead. And all the pain and all the anguish and all the stuff you've gone through, you're going to have great joy in your life now. It's going to be so good. And once you have that joy, he says, you'll never be robbed of that joy again because you will see me resurrected. That's exactly what he is telling. It's a great thing. Now, here's, let me give you a, a quick sidebar. <clears throat> Or let me ask a question first. Is the witness, is the eyewitness of the resurrection important? Yes. Say yes. It's very important. Because like I said, Sunday. Remember I told you Sunday? I think I said it Sunday. That um, your faith as a Christian, it's not a blind faith. You know that by now, right? You don't live a blind faith. You don't tell somebody, you just got to believe. No, 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 no. No, you don't just got to believe without evidence. You have a faith that is evidence-based. It's very much evidence-based by eyewitnesses of the account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's evidence-based. You just have to read up on it, and you'll see all the scholars, whatever he says. The way historians do history is the same way we do history with the resurrection of Jesus. You do the same thing, and the evidence is there of this resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, how important is the resurrection? I'll give you one thing. Now, keep your marker right here, 
and turn over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Remember, Judas kind of blows his life up, right? Yes or no? He implodes his life. So that means there's 11 disciples. Do they replace one of the disciples? Do they replace him? Say yes. Yeah, they replace him. So now watch. Watch when they replace him. Let's look from Acts chapter 1, verse 18 to 22. Watch this. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, meaning Judas. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. Beautiful imagery, right? Yeah, really nice. Um, <clears throat> okay, real quick. Do you guys uh, remember how I explained why in the Gospels it says he went out and hung himself, and here it is a whole different thing where it says his guts gushed out? Do you guys remember that? Yeah. What I said years ago on that? Do you? No? Yeah? Uh-uh. Okay, real quick. It's just got to be real quick. Um, he did it. And by the way, Josephus tells us the location, the Jewish historian. He said, Judas went out and hung himself. He went out to the other side of the Dead Sea, on the northeastern side, and he hung himself there. Jerusalem is 4,000 feet up in the mountains up there, Mount Moriah. He travels all the way down, goes down through the Jordan Valley, across the Dead Sea on the northeastern part. He traveled a long way to hang himself. Long way. So, but why does it say in, um, in the Gospels he hung himself? And why does it say here in Acts that his guts gushed out? Okay, let's try to put that together. Because in the Gospels, that's what he, he hung himself. The writer of Acts, what's his name? I'm so, yeah, Acts. What's his name? Luke. What's he by profession? The doctor. He's going to give you a little more, isn't he? Because he's a doctor. And so he gives us a description of what happens out there in that warm country when a dead body is hanging up there. You ever seen those images on social media when a whale beaches itself and dies and it sits there for a while? What happens to it? Eventually, it explodes, man. No different with Judas. Luke is describing that. He's giving you that information in Acts that his body was hanging there and in that heat, it finally bloated and it finally what? Finally exploded. It's, these, it's not contradictory. It's the exact same story, but from different perspectives, okay? Does that make sense? Okay, let's read on. <clears throat> um, verse 19. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, the field was called Hakaldama, that is, field of blood. For it's written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. And here now we find another prophetic statement from hundreds of years ago, and now it's fulfilled right now again. Man, I love stuff like that. Therefore it was necessary, verse 21, that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Here it is. Beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us, meaning fill the place of Judas, of his what? Resurrection. Question. So what must a person to become one of the original 12, what is an experience that that person must have? It's got to be an eyewitness. He's got to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we find right here. Resurrection, very, very important. Now, let's go back to John chapter 16. <clears throat> now, I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to give you first point, first point right here. And that is, 
One day, our current trial will simply be a three-minute story we tell, or a one-minute story, or a two-minute story, or a 10-second story. One day, the trial that you're in right now, the bad situation you're in, and one day, it's just going to be a one-minute or two-minute. I'll just put a three-minute story because some of you talk longer than others. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> ladies, let's go back to Jesus because we're going back to verse 21 again. In the childbirth, how many hours were some of you in labor? Just say hours. Two. Two hours? Anybody got that beat? How many? None? Okay. okay it was a drive-through. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, anybody? Any hours? Nineteen? I already it's painful just hearing that. Okay, Rhonda? Two days? Two days? They kept sending you home and you just want to go home, huh? Okay. Okay, so it lasts a while, right? And it's a lot of pain for quite a while. Okay, so it lasts and lasts. It's agonizing, difficult, long time. But then the baby's born. And then once the baby was born after two days or 19 hours or whatever it's been, do you remember much of those 19 hours or two days? You don't remember much of it anymore, do you? I mean, it's all gone now. <clears throat> so, here's the thing. If somebody asked you, about, uh, and Sylvia, I'll pick on you because you said 19 specific hours, which is insane to me right there. If somebody asked you, said, you know, tell us about the 19 hours, how long would it take you to tell that story? Oh, it was bad. It was really painful. It was tough. And that'd be it, right? It'd be over so fast. And that's how long you share about this trial that you went through, huh? Because the baby was born, that's true of, pers- I'm sorry, that's true of problems and trials in life. Some of us, how many like me have been in trials that have lasted years? Years. I mean, I, I, could, I can't tell you a story and I can't tell you now, but some of the stories I could tell you from this position as senior pastor of a church, the things that happen, the things you go through, and the, the attacks you get, and the thing, it's like sometimes it just lasts years and it doesn't go away. And finally it goes away. It just goes away. And that's why I tell people, if you're not called to ministry, you will quit within the first two years because you won't want to put up with it. Why would you want to put up with it all and all the pain and suffering things and the attacks on your family and everything that happens with it? But when you go through these things, when they're over, when you tell the story, it lasts all of about a minute. It's just over that fast. It's really interesting. Is it not? That it just becomes this really, really quick story that you just tell about what happened, but it's over now. Now, the second thing I want to say about that is this in your notes. Suffering comes with memory loss, doesn't it? I mean, don't you? Well, let's just look, let's clarify. Now, look, look at verse 21 again. You read it. Tell me what the woman doesn't remember in verse 21. What does she not remember? Her pain or anguish, right? And that word anguish or pain, the Greek word means pressure or oppression or affliction. It says, Jesus says, as Jesus talking, he says, she doesn't remember the pain. So that tells me after the fact, there's a pain disconnect. Is there not? It's all of a sudden, there's a, you have this pain, emotional trauma, and then all of a sudden, it resolves, and the baby's, and pain disconnect, right? I mean, no matter how long the trial was, there's a pain disconnect. It's all of a sudden, it's gone. Here's what it is. Don't you, okay, uh, Sylvia, I'm picking you again, okay. You remember the event of the 19 hours, right? But the emotional part of it's not connected anymore, is it? 
See, please, please say it's not, okay? Okay. It, it's, a, it's a disconnect, right? It's gone because that emotional part's gone. But when you're in it, in that trial and problem, isn't there a lot of emotional stress and pain and everything else? But then when it's over, all of a sudden, emotional disconnect. You remember the event, but you don't remember the emotional connection anymore. That's gone. Look, you know why some people keep making bad decisions and some people are unhappy and some people are depressed and some people keep doing You know why they do that? Because they never, and it's a choice. I've counseled for decades. They never choose to let go of the emotional connection of the event of the past. They hold on to the emotion of it. And it's the emotion of it that drives a person to make wrong decisions. But once it's over, you can make a cut from the emotional connection of it because that event's over. And you can move on and grow and become the person that God wants you to be. Everybody in this room, you've gone through pain, right? Every one of us. Some of it's really, really bad. But you know what? That pain, if you used it right, it defined who you are today for the better. Did it not? It did for everybody, if we use it the correct way. Now, I don't know where I'm at. I went off my notes, so here we go. Let me find where I'm at. Okay, so there's a pain disconnect there. Now, John 16, 22 says this. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy, or no one will take your joy away from you. Now, <clears throat> what brings your joy back? What brings your joy back? They will see Jesus again. So what brings your joy back? The resurrection. It's a very simple, very simple arithmetic. Once they see him again, they have joy again. All right, verse 23. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Real quick, in my name is the idea of according to the will of God, right? I just can't ask for whatever I want, think, oh, why didn't God give me that? No, in His name, according to His will. That's how you ask, okay. Now, He says here in that day, verse 23, you will not question me about anything. In other words, you're not going to ask me any questions anymore. Okay, wait a minute. Mark here again, go to Acts chapter 1 again. Now, let's take a look at something. Because he says, in that day, you're not going to ask me anything. You're not going to ask me any more questions. Now look at Acts chapter 1. We're in Acts 1, say I'm there. Okay, look at verse 6. This is right before Jesus ascends to heaven. And verse 6 says, So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Did they ask him a question? Huh. But over in John 16, you can turn back and say, In that day, you're not going to ask me a question. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they ask him a question. What's going on with that? What's up with that? Well, it's very simple. He says, in that day, you will ask me no question. What's the context that we're talking about in, Act, in John 16? Resurrection. So in that day, when you see me resurrected, you'll understand everything, and you'll never ask me questions about that resurrection stuff again. Acts chapter 1 is a whole different scenario. It's a whole different set of circumstances, and now they're asking him questions about something else. I just gave that to you in case that ever came up in conversation with anyone. Um, verse uh, 24 of John 16. Until now, you have asked, asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may, may be made full. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. 
An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language. But I will tell you plainly of the Father. He says, look, I've spoken to you kind of cryptic. It's kind of like you don't see it all. But the moment's going to come when I'm going to speak plainly to you. And that moment is out there with the death, resurrection, ascension, etc., everything else. Now, point three in your notes. The most important truth I need to know is God loves me. Right? Right? Isn't that the one thing Satan tries to get us to doubt? That God loves me? That God cares about me? That God's there for me? Doesn't he? Now, look at verse 26 and 27. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will request to the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Huh. The most important truth I can know is that God loves me, right? So let me give you a great verse to try to solidify that for you. Turn to your right to Romans chapter 5. It's Acts, then Romans. Romans 5. Let's show God's love. By the way, what makes us doubt God's love? Earlier in the chapter, Jesus said, ask in my name and I'll do it for you. What makes us doubt God's love? If I ask God for something and he doesn't do it for me. Right? It can make you doubt God's love. But the key is, you got to remember, is in his name, in his will. You see, too many Christians, they say, God doesn't love me, he didn't do this for me. Wait a minute. You just have to take them down logic road now. Because as a parent, haven't you told your kids no? You didn't do it for them. Does that mean you didn't love them? No, it didn't mean that at all. It just meant that that's not what's best for you. And that's not my will for you right now. You're a child, and I know it's better. And so always remember that. Just use logic in these things. Your parent, you as a parent, you still loved your child even though you told him no. God tells us no at times. It doesn't mean he doesn't love us. It doesn't mean that whatsoever. So don't fall to that lie at all. So God loves me. Now look at Romans 5 and look at verse 8. Now watch this about God's love. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that, what? While we were, what? Yet sinners, Christ died for us. When did Jesus die for us? When we were, what? In other words, before we ever knew Jesus, before we came to Christ, when we were at the height, the peak of our sinning ability, and we were laying it out there and we were committing sins, right? Jesus loved us in that moment. Now, the question with that is this. If Jesus loved us in that moment, will he ever stop loving us? No. Because how many here you know, once you became a Christian, you got less and less into sin. You're not perfect. None of us are. But it's like you're not as bad a sinner as you once were. Any amens? Please say amen to that one, okay? Okay, you're not as bad a sinner as you once were. So if he loved me back here when I was at the height of my sinning, he's going to love me still today when I'm not as bad a sinner as I once was. Amen? Amen. I mean, that's a great thing right there. I just gave you a free one right there. Now, let's go back to John, John John 16. Point four, and that's this. The world is not the end. There is life beyond it. 
There is life beyond what we see now. And look at verse 28. This is a great verse. He says, I came forth from the Father, and I have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. What did Jesus say? I've come from the Father into this world, but I'm going to leave this world, and I'm going to go back to the Father. What's he saying in a nutshell? Is our world a closed or open system? It's open. It's not a closed system. He comes into it, and then he leaves it. It's an open system. Now, I want to finish with this verse. I got a lot to say about this idea here. So I'm going to just jump in and come back to this verse. Is that okay? Good, because you have no choice. Okay, so let's just jump and, and come back. So look at verse 29. The disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. <clears throat> we know, now we know, that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. Question, do they believe now? Yes, they did. I'm sure they meant it. But do they really believe yet? Wait a minute. Let's see verse 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Verse 32, Jesus says, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Do they really believe? No, they really, really didn't quite believe. See, how many know it's easy to say, I'm a believer, right? Until the examination and the test comes, correct? And it's the test that proves if you truly are the real deal. The test came, they took Jesus, they scatter, Peter denies, so they fail all these tests. Now watch, now question, is all hope gone for these guys? No, watch what Jesus says, verse 33. In the midst of all, what's going to happen? He says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Now watch. As you're scattering, as you're running, as you're doubting, he says, but take courage. But take courage. He says, I've, over I've overcome the world. I've overcome, I've knocked out Satan through the death and resurrection. I'm going to knock him out. So you take courage. Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. Okay, now let me go back. Look at verse 28 again. This whole idea of there's life beyond. I just kind of want to parallel something that I think is, I, I kind of think it's cool. He says, I came forth from the Father, and I have come into the world. I am leaving the world again, and I'm going to the Father. Okay. <clears throat> Let me try to, I'm going to try to illustrate this. I'm going to use Moses and I'm going to use Jesus. We know from Genesis chapter 15, we know that God tells Abraham, the, the Jews, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they will they'll immigrate to another land. We know it's Egypt. They're going to go there. He says they're going to be there for four generations. Right? How long were they in Egypt for? Over 400 years. So we know biblically then a generation, if you do the math, is about 100 years, right? I think that's very important when it comes to end-time prophecy and stuff like that. So you've got to think of it that way. A generation, biblically, is 100 years. It's not 40 years. We take it from Genesis. 
Now, we also know that God said he would eventually bring him out. I'm going to bring him back out again, right? We know that Moses is the guy that God picks. Now, Moses, does he really want to go back and deliver them? He was all excited at age 40, wasn't he? At age 80, he's like, I don't, I don't go back. What are you talking about, man? Isn't that funny? The longer we wait to do something for God, the less likely we are to do it, right? We just, I don't want to do that. Now, in Exodus 6, Moses, he's, he's going back to Egypt there, and the whole idea there is that you got to let the people go on the grounds that long ago God said, these are his people, let them go, Pharaoh. Let these people go. Now, question, how does Pharaoh respond to that one? He kind of laughs in Moses' face, right? Are you kidding yourself? You really think I'm going to let these people go? Now, Pharaoh, let's talk about him first, and we're going to talk about Israel. Then we'll talk about God. Let's break him in three categories. Pharaoh, he doesn't recognize Moses' God, correct? Right? He doesn't recognize Moses' God. Are you kidding? Pharaoh, when Moses says, I'm going to take the people out, we're going to this land over here, Pharaoh denies any, any of the ideas that Israel even has a life or future outside of Egypt, right? There's no world for them outside of Egypt. This is their world, and this is the only world they know and will ever know. So Pharaoh's denying even that. Pharaoh is even saying, look, your, your promised land thing, that's a fairy tale. There is no promised land. There's no pie in the sky. There's nothing for them. There's nothing at all like that. So this is what Pharaoh's hammering into their heads, right? So let's take Israel now in that same situation that they're in there. Israel, is Egypt, they've been there 400 some years. Is Egypt the only place they'd ever known? Yes. It's all they've ever known. They, they wake up there. They eat there. They sleep there. They work seven days a week there. They never get a day off at all. That's all they've ever known. This is all, all, all and, they, and they die there, and they die there. So that's all they know. There's no world outside of this. There's no promised land. There's, this is all I know. Now, let's take God. God comes in and says, you got to deliver these people. How are you going to do it? Well, Moses, we're going to destroy Pharaoh. We're going to have to destroy him. He's going to implode his whole life. He's got to be destroyed. And then Moses, we got to get the people to believe that I sent you, that I sent you, Moses, to deliver the people out of the land. And then we, we got to get them to believe, to leave there, that there is a promised land outside of this land. Are you guys following me so far? Are you following me so far? Are you seeing the parallels? So this is what's got to happen. So now, you put it all together, the application is this. Um, so Pharaoh is like a picture of Satan. You see that now? He's a complete picture of Satan in that. And he's got millions upon millions upon millions and millions and millions and maybe billions of people believing that this is all there is. There is no God. There's no divine purpose. There's no realm beyond this realm. There is no promised land like heaven. There's none of those things. So give it up. It's just one big fairy tale. And found, in other words, in fact, if you can't prove it scientifically, then, that there's a, then you know what? That it's not even real at all. This is what, we're, this is what they're pushing out in this world. That only science is the only reason. In fact, these atheist scientists say that your decision making in your life is just your DNA dancing to itself. That's all it is. You didn't even make a decision for anything. It's just your DNA doing that. So they, they shoot that down, which is absurd because when you look at science, real science, science now, it points to the existence of God. It actually does. When you look at science, Science doesn't point to no God. It points to the existence of a creator of all these things. So Satan, now he has 
this whole world in this prison of his, hopeless, nothing outside of this world. This is just all there is. So what does God got to do? He's got to send his Moses now. He's got to send his son, Jesus Christ, right? And he's got to come into this world. And here comes Jesus. And what does he got to do? He's got to break Satan, which he does. He's got to convince the people through us that there is a God, that there is a life beyond this, and there is a heaven, and these people got to put faith in him. Do you see the parallels? Do you see the parallels? And so he's got to do all these things. And so when we look at verse 28 of John, he says, I I came, I'm here, but I'm going to leave, and I'm going to go back. And he's a complete picture of what Moses did in the Exodus. When Jesus came to earth and settled all these things, he led a brand new Exodus of millions of people over the last 20 centuries into knowing and believing that there's a land, there's a world, there's a realm outside of this realm that we know right now. And we've got to get them to believe it. And once they start to believe it, then they're going to take God up on it and they're going to follow the new Moses, Jesus Christ, in the next exodus. And every time a person gets saved, that's an exodus. A person comes out of darkness into the light of God. And that's what verse 28 says. Let me read it and let me close with it. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world and I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. And Pharaoh, and Moses tells Pharaoh, God says, these are his people. I've come to get them. And we're leaving. And we're going to a promised land. It's the same thing that Jesus is saying in verse 28. Isn't that amazing? That's something? Amen. Let's stop there. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you, Jesus, that you did come. You entered into this system, the system you created, this world, this earth, people. And you came for another exodus to take people out into a realm, into a promised land beyond this realm. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for that, God. And Lord, tonight, pray we take some of these things and we apply it. Lord, especially, Lord, the trials that we're in right now, one day it's going to be a three-minute story. That's all it's going to be. The emotional attachment, there'll be a disconnect. We'll remember the event, but the emotions won't be there anymore. Thank you for that, God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCCNorco, or email us at hello at nbcc.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.